surveying your own head this morning, what are some unpopular topics, especially around maybe the dinner table at Thanksgiving, when all, the, all your family and friends are gathered? How about politics? That'll make everybody joyful at the table. Vaccines, conservation, conspiracy theories, reparations. We could just keep listing the, the hot topics of the day, couldn't we? Um, I'm not encouraging you to bring any of those things up at the table. <laughs> um, here's one I think is most unpopular. You want an awkward conversation, just deadpan, bring this up. God's wrath. Things could get very uncomfortable. This one levels all of us if you handle it according to Scripture. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. You'll find the text provided for you in the Bible that's there in the pew, page 997. Remember, Paul's writing to this uh, newest church there in Rome. He desires to get to them, to equip them, and to be helped himself, to help uh, come together with them in the gospel, to take to further the gospel to the Gentiles. And uh, we've been dealing with, obviously, the introduction of the letter. Last week, we did, dealt with the thesis statement of the letter in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for uh, salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written the righteous will live by faith. And so we thought last week that that righteousness revealed is that particular gift of righteousness given to any who put their trust by their faith in Christ alone. So why is a received righteousness the only way to be right in right standing with God? Well, from chapter 1, verse 18, which we're going to be in today, and I'm not going to do all of all, but from here, we're only going to do a few verses this morning, but from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, is going to be showing us why we need God to give us righteousness. So he could have gone on about the gospel here, about the good, good thing, particular things about the cross and what happens, but he stops for a minute and tells us why it is good news, why we need God's righteousness, why we cannot earn it, while we don't deserve it or attain it ourselves, this section will present us with a dark picture of humanity. It's the backdrop of which the bright jewel of the gospel shines all the brighter. Okay? So what Paul, think of yourself in a room. Let's say we, we blacked out all the lights in here, the windows, and we wanted to really highlight a particular flashlight or spotlight in here so you would understand it with great clarity. Well, that's what he does here. He's going to, for this, from this section all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to show you why the gospel shines so bright, what such wonderful news, why you need God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. Let's look at the text now. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 23 today. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. This is God's word. The gift of righteousness is being revealed as the gospel is preached And the wrath of God, though, is being revealed in human society. Righteousness being revealed in the gospel. Wrath is being revealed in human society. The wrath is displayed against the natural man. Man has willfully rejected God, according to this section. And this rejection has taken place in spite of a natural awareness of God possessed by every person. That's Paul's argument. People, here's the central point, people need God's gift of righteousness because humanity is under God's wrath. People need God's gift of righteousness because humanity is under God's wrath. Number one, the indignation. The indignation of God, focusing on verse 18. What's the big deal about God's gift of righteousness? Verse 18 tells us it's because of God's righteous indignation, his wrath against rebellion and sin. We need righteousness because we are unrighteous. We do not do what is right according to our maker. Why is God's saving righteousness revealed only to those who come empty-handed with faith? Verse 17, answer, because God's very angry with everyone else in the world. God is holy. That means not only that he's unlike anything else, there's nothing or no one like him, but also that he is holy and pure and good. He's, we talk about so-and-so is a good person. I understand what they mean, but God is actually truly good. Pure in every way. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. I can't say that about any human being. I should never say that about any human being. It's simply not true. There's only one human being that that's true of, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God. Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Of course not. Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But God is morally pure and perfect And he is the standard of holiness. So let me say up front, let's talk about the wrath of God. The wrath of God refers to his personal anger against sin. It's not like our human anger, let me be clear. It is holy and it's not selfish or arbitrary, but represents his holy and loving response against human wickedness. John Murray, that great reform giant, and friend of J. Gresham Machen, helped, who was, in many ways helped found Westminster Seminary, described wrath in precisely this way when he writes the classic definition. Wrath 
is the holy revulsion of God being against that which is the contradic- in contradiction of his holiness. Wrath is God's disciplinary reaction to the evil that manifests itself as rebellion towards God and in humans degrading themselves and others. God is not happy with sin. Quite, quite the opposite. The term wrath denotes not so much of a sudden flaring up of passion, which is soon over as a strong, and, but it's a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's very holy nature. And so there are some churches you would go to, you could put churches in quotes, where the love of God is, is proclaimed, proclaimed, but no mention whatsoever of the Bible's faithful teaching and clear teaching that God is holy and wholly wrathful against sin. So don't make the mistake and think God's wrath is like your unsettledness over the house not being right or your children not behaving exactly how you want them to. That's not like what it's like at all. God is not like us. He is not a disgruntled deity. Much of our wrath is sinful, misplaced, inconvenienced, and rooted in our own pridefulness. We are mixed often in our wrath, and sometimes we have righteous wrath, but we're still mixed up in our hearts. But the wrath of God is his hot, settled, just personal fury against sin and sinners. The present tense here is revealed, implies a constant disclosure. It is revealed. It's going on all the time from heaven, which stands in contrast to the previous verse in the gospel, in the previous verse, implying a universal disclosure from heaven, reaching those whom the gospel has not yet reached. So why is this gospel such good news? Because apart from the gospel, everyone, everyone, according to the Bible, is under God's wrath because all have sinned. Look at the behaviors pointed out in the text. It talks about godlessness, which is rebellion against God, perhaps corresponding to the first, of the ten, first four of the Ten Commandments. And then unrighteousness, which is treating other people wrongly, which corresponds with the the remaining Ten Commandments. Oh, we, are, we have certainly broken God's law. We have not loved the Lord God with all of our heart, and we have not loved our neighbor as we love ourselves. I mean, think of how self-focused we are rather than God-focused. Think of how we love other things above God, like money and power and sex. We will center our lives around our possessions, around our positions and pleasures, Those are the three deadly P's, possessions, positions, and pleasures, because we take good things and make them ultimate things. Think of how we fail to love others and do right. Think of how we fail to speak up for the oppressed and against the unjust and against the lies that are regularly spoken up in our media. So wrath being revealed here refers broadly to the sentence of condemnation that all people stand under, a sentence that that God sometimes inflicts in the events of history, but will carry out with finality at the end of history. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, if you have not repented of your sins, like turn to God and sought his forgiveness and, and change in Christ, the Bible says you are under God's wrath. It even says you're a child of the devil in Ephesians. It says you are dead in your sins and transgressions says you are already stand condemned. The Bible speaks of eternal conscious torment called hell. When sinners get what they always wanted, 
And is that, their, that is their sin. Their separation from God, which they always wanted. But this time, it comes with the payment due for those sins. The wages of sin is death. Eternal death. And pain await all who refuse to come to God. As you know, if you don't understand or believe in the wrath of God, the gospel will not thrill, it will not empower, and it will not move you. So Christian, put that in your toolbox this morning. Maybe you're a little non-excited about the gospel because you have forgotten God's wrath. If you don't understand or believe in the wrath of God, the gospel's not going Jesus is not going to thrill you. And he's not going to empower you, and he's not going to move you in your heart. Because you think you are inherently deserving of salvation. God's word says, no, you're not. You are a sinner. And in our sins, we are like little bratty, entitled children. Who need a dose of reality. What a mistake today to think we are worthy of God's mercy and grace when we have thought so little of him. Yet sometimes we walk around like we're better than others. What a mistake to think God can interrupt our lives. You know, can he, what a mistake to think God cannot interrupt our lives with trials and challenges, forgetting that we were bought at a price that we belonged to him to begin with. What foolishness to forget how close we were to hell before Jesus came and rescued us. The Bible reveals that wrath is due and there is only one who can deliver us from God's wrath. The Lord Jesus Christ came to us in moral perfection and took on the sin of God's people, paid for that sin, bearing God's wrath for any who repent and believe. It means take God's side against your sin. And then when you, when you repent, you're saying, I can't save myself. I have no righteousness. I turn from trusting in myself. And I put all my trust in Jesus. Friends, the best thing I could do for you this morning is to say, turn your eyes upon Jesus. People need God's gift of righteousness because humanity is under God's wrath. Number two, the suppression. We thought about the indignation, but now the suppression, the suppression of the truth, verses 19 through 20. Have you ever been your own worst enemy? I have. There we go. Some, there's an honest brother right there. It could be the way you, you, know, you sabotage your diet or you sabotage your own mood. Or you sabotage your own work. Get the feeling of the passage here. When it comes to seeing the reality about God, we are our own worst enemy. I don't know about you, but I don't like that feeling. I hate it when I'm in my own way. It's like watching a young child struggle to eat. They cannot get out of their own way to use their tools right. And then, you know, there's something squishing through their fingers, or it's just not going in like it's supposed to, or... It, that's like us. We get in our own way. The argument here is this. Things visible around us call for a power that's invisible, and we all know it. The section here forces us to ask, what is your relationship like to the reality of God? What's your relationship like to the reality of God? And how have you chosen to view the universe? Everybody in here has a worldview. But is it the correct one? There are two options here. You either think about your relationship with God accurately or you suppress any thoughts that might come up about him 
You change him, ignore him, and insert your own ideas there. So evidently, God's existence and justice are so traumatic. By the way, when people encounter the truth about God, there is a spiritual trauma that happens because all of a sudden, they're aware of how small they are. It's very traumatic for people who treasure their their sins and that they are left with only one option to cope with that predicament, and that's to deny him, deny him, deny him, suppress it, suppress it, suppress it. And if they can't do it mentally, they'll use other things. And so Paul anticipates that part of us that wants to argue back against God's wrath. It's like he already knows the arguments are coming. The wrath of God's revealed. Everybody's already got their, their, their fighting arms up. No way. What about this? What about that? And he's already ready to answer it. He's already ready to help you deal with that. Verse 19, he anticipates the objection that people don't know any better. How can God hold someone accountable for not knowing a God they have never heard of? Well, let the, look, let's start at verse 20 and argue backwards into the, into the uh, part of verse 18 where the suppression is mentioned. Let's argue backward from verse 20. People are without excuse before God. Why? Because evidence of knowing that there is the Almighty God is clearly observable in creation. So what is the, what's the problem? Us. People suppress the plain facts in their sins. The problem is one of the heart. People do not want God, and so they press the truth of him down. That's the argument. The charge is you all, as we say down south, y'all. Maybe from up north, use guys, all suppress, hinder, reject the truth about God. That's what man does. So sinners are not under judgment because they failed to attain knowledge of God that was accessible to them. That's not what he's saying. Paul says they do know already and they have chosen to shut away that knowledge. It's an act of the will. When people boast in free will, I'm always like, I'd be careful. The will of man is rebellious. It needs to be remade. It's not some secret power we have in the things of God. Actually, it's one of our worst enemies. We are willful sinners. The fill of the verse is, the fill of the verse is, let's not play dumb, y'all. Let's not, let's not play stupid like a guilty 10-year-old that's been busted. We are not neutral, autonomous, independent, and unbiased investigators of the truth. But those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth is what Paul says. In verse 20, to be without excuse means to not be able to defend yourself or to justify your actions. That's what he means, without excuse. You're busted. You're busted. I can't tell you, I've told my kids, hey, you're busted. That's because I got busted. But right here, we're all busted. No excuse. There's no excuse. Let's just think through it. Think through this, this term. There's how we can think, there's no excuse for subsidizing Planned Parenthood as a nation whatsoever. There's no excuse for men who beat their families. There's no ch- excuse for uh, fathering children outside of wedlock. There's no excuse for women who manipulate through emotional and, and, and even sexual means. There's no excuse for Hamas's treatment of innocent people. There's no excuse for Darwinizing and politicizing science. We agree with these things, but the Bible makes it plain that for us to have the faculties to observe nature and willfully ignore a creator is inexcusable. There's no excuse, the Bible says. God condemns people who consciously rebel against him. 
So let me give an observation that you may or may not accept. One teaching section here I just want to have for a minute. But I think that this implies that those you're without excuse implies that God is merciful to, to infants who he elects, who die as well as those who have severe mental abilities. I believe that the Bible does reveal there are those who, with, who have an excuse. And people debate that. That's just my position. You help, I'm, you're happy, I'm happy for you to take that up with me. But he's dealing with people who have no excuse. Observable uh, faculties, the ability to see those things. So if there's an innocent person on the planet, they will have an excuse. But the problem is, the Bible says in Romans, no one is righteous. No, not one. People aren't wrestling with the truth. The Bible says here they are suppressing it. So we cannot be guilty of suppressing a truth we never knew. But we know as image bearers, as we confessed in the confession of faith, that there is a God. That there is a creator. You know what? I suppress the truth about the New York Giants, often in my head. I do not want to deal with how bad our football season is. Uh, I suppress the truth that this, that um, I suppress the truth that is before me on the scales when I step on them often. I, su- I suppress the truth about those things. That's trivial. Suppressing the truth about my health is foolish. Uh, supp- you know, but humanity suppresses something that has eternal consequences, and that is about the existence of God. In verses 19 through 20, evidence for God is all around us in creation. The testimony of an all-powerful God is seen in creation. Um, This is called God's general revelation, as the theologians say it. Creation, which is observable, reveals that there is an invisible God. You know, we can't know everything about God from creation, from general revelation, like his love, his mercy, for instance. But we can and do deduce that whoever created all this must be a being of unimaginable greatness. And then we suppress that truth in our sin. And this shatters the question of who is you know, repressed in this life. As long as we repress and suppress the fact of God, we will never understand who we are or why the world is as it is. As people march in streets and scream about uh, their desires not being met while they ignore God, they're just further repressing themselves in ignorance and uh, further repressing themselves in ignoring who God is and how God made them with dignity. As Keller put it, it's not acknowledging the Creator's right to be ruler that is repressive. It is the self-suppression of living in denial of that truth. Humanity has willfully spurned what should be a guiding acknowledgement of God. Let me do another illustration here. We do not like food that tastes bad. I don't think anybody here is going, I can't wait to eat something I don't like to taste. No one's saying that. If we do, we'll talk afterwards. We'll have prayer. But sometimes our taste buds, ready for this, are messed up. How dare he? I'm going for it. I'm going all in. And it's not the food. Take someone off of a highly processed diet. Put them on foods that are home-cooked meals, fresh foods, and they can't identify what is good because all they know is junk food. Just because it tastes good doesn't mean it's necessarily good for you. In a similar way, human beings do not naturally like the taste of truth as it pertains to God and what it means about themselves. 
the taste buds are wrong. The taste buds are wrong. They have to, they need, they need uh, proper treatment, proper nourishment. And that is the truth. The reality of God cannot be changed or suppressed in the final sense, though. The fingerprints of the Creator's majesty and matchless power from the grandeur of creation, even without direct revelation, is there for us all to see. Did everything and its wonder and beauty come from nothing? Can anything come from nothing? Did everything and its wonder and beauty come from nothing? Am I really to believe this just happened? Who's trying to fool who and why? Everything around screams that there is a God, just as the footprint on Caruso's island convinced him that someone else was there. Or would he believe that the fine-tuning of the universe is without a designer? The sun is in the perfect mass and... Any difference would lead to our planet being unable to support life. The earth is exactly the right distance from the sun for there to be a stable water cycle. The earth's gravity, axle tilt rotation uh, period, magnetic field, crust, thickness, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, water vapor, and ozone levels are just right. Come on, man. Think of your own body. Not too long, okay? Just think about it for a minute. Take a moment to consider how your eye focuses and refocuses hundreds of times a day with a pupil which is constantly adjusting to different amounts of light. Think about how you were formed in the womb. Think about the the sperm and ovum that met and made you with similar features to your, your family. Your body began with just one cell which first divided into two and then four and then kept rapidly doubling. At 40 weeks, nine months, there were close to uh, 10,000 million uh, uh, cells that make up the body and throughout your life, they say seven billion cells die and and are replaced by cellular division. It's a brilliant house in which to live, but just as I don't believe that my own house appeared without a builder, nor do I accept that my body had no maker. I mean, I don't think anybody here is going to accept the fact that this room hasn't been painted. You know good and well it's been painted. I could keep telling you, and you go, why do you keep saying that? I know. Friends, creation should be that plain to us. Things visible call for a power that is invisible. The idea that matter has always existed is as impossible a premise for the logical mind. It's just impossible for the logical mind to, to receive that. We shouldn't receive that. The view that behind the visible world there must be must exist an invisible being is far more reasonable. And so those who do not believe are without excuse. Without excuse. Everything made, everything that God made is designed to confront us with God's existence and nature. And in so doing, confront our delusions of autonomy and self-sufficiency. But in our sin, we like to be separate from God. We don't want to answer to Him. Every morning when we get up, we bump into God and come face to face with His existence. You know, I've got to repent of something this morning. Um, I have a tendency to feel uncomfortable singing verse 2 of How Great Thou Art. 
Um, because it feels this, it's, 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 you're, talk, you're describing these words, and they talk about when through the woods, I'm like, are we going through a walk through the woods? What's going on here? I feel like this like skippy person, and I just have not really appreciated verse 2. I repent of that. Verse 2, when through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. I will no longer feel that about that verse. I will be like, amen. God is testifying. We are bumping into evidence that he is there. And he is not silent. Evolutionists and atheists claim unbiased science. That's not true. The rejection of God's existence is literally a foregone conclusion they draw and therefore no less unreasonable. Friends, Paul says our faith is a reasonable faith. You understand that this morning? I want to look you all square in the face if you're a Christian. Your faith is reasonable. Ta-da! Look around. One's worldview, though, is a choice. While the created order cannot force a person to believe, it does leave the recipient responsible for not believing. As a driver, heaven help our teen drivers in the room, help us all, but especially the teens. As a driver, you are responsible for all posted signs. I have, I have passed by some signs that I, for some reason I just did not notice them like I should have. It does not get me off the hook when the state trooper has pulled me over. It makes you mad when they pull you over, you know what I mean? But I, what can I say? If the sign was there, I'm still responsible, aren't I, as a driver? You're if you having ignored the sign, you recklessly, uh, you know, just if you recklessly plunge over a cliff and the sign is was telling you it was there and destroy both yourself and your pastor, you're responsible. Friends, see the signs of God in nature. The judgment of God, like that of, of a police officer pulling me aside, comes not because uh, we, we didn't or couldn't know God, but because being aware of God, we nevertheless refuse to acknowledge him as God. Let me get more clear. Creation is no mere sign on the road of the journey through life. It's the billboards all up over the highway, right? And driving up from Florida, which I've done, I can't tell you how many times over the years, when I lived in North Carolina and lived in this area, um, it's been over 20 years I've been going up and down 95. There are so many ridiculous south-of-the-border ads. You know what I'm talking about. It's such a disappointment when you pull in. You're like, this is, this was what this is all about? Uh, ha, ha, just, let, just admit it. Raise your hand if you've ever pulled into south-of-the-border. Okay, thank you. Just want to make sure I wasn't the only one. There's so many south-of-the-border billboards. And now Bucky's. Uh, Bucky's, uh, that's fun. I like going to Bucky's. You can't miss them. Friends, creation is the billboards you keep running by every day, announcing the reality of God. The suppression of the truth is why people avoid the one who is the way and the truth and the life. People do not, without the convicting grace of the Holy Spirit, want to hear about Jesus. But the fact is, we need to speak the name of Jesus. Only Jesus, it's only him can we be saved from God's wrath and from our sinful selves. Number three, the degradation. 
the degradation of human beings, verses 21 through 22. All right, uh, shoppers, uh, what happens when you drive a brand new car off the lot? The value what? Drops. And what happens when you suppress the truth about God? Humanity begins to drop, to degrade. When the truth about God is suppressed, man's value does not go up. It starts the trajectory. It starts its movement towards destruction. When people suppress the truth about God, they dehumanize themselves in their thinking, and that flows from a darkened heart, verse 21. And the word heart here denotes the center of the person. The person who suppresses the truth is marked by intellectual futility and spiritual darkness. They need the light of the gospel to overcome the darkness. Why are sinners without excuse? Verse 21 through 22 tell us they knew God, but did not worship God nor thank God and went further into darkness, worthless thinking and darkness of heart. Now, let me do a little clarification in teaching here. The opening statement here, they knew God, cannot be taken absolutely. Since elsewhere, Paul writes about people outside of Christ that don't know God. It refers to the limited knowledge of God. Let's interpret it in its context. Knowledge of his power and glory, which is available to everyone through general revelation. So what happens in our hearts when, when we are unthankful? One pastor noted, Paul is saying we are plagiarists, he says. We take what God has made and pass it off as our own. Think about just the, the whole, think about some of the most popular sayings in culture today. Love is love. My body, my choice. They take things and twist them and ignore God in those statements. We don't acknowledge our dependence on our creator, but claim to be independent. We prefer the illusion that we can call the shots and decide what is right and wrong to the reality that creation speaks to us of. We're not grateful, he says, because we do not accept what he has done for us and around us, end quote. So the language of becoming worthless here reminds us of the Old Testament description of ancient Israel and how they conformed to their worthless idols. Idols are foolish. They cannot see. They cannot think. Just like those who worship them. We conform to what we worship. And that's a whole sermon to itself. Billy Graham noted, with evil intent, mankind has always tried to bring God down to its level. This, in fact, is one of the ways we humans emulate Satan, who desires to be on par with God, though he never will be. Whether humans recognize God as creator, God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, God is omnipresent, doesn't change the fact that he is all those things. If you don't believe this, you are being deceived. Who are we to denounce his person? Who are we to defy his power? And who are we to debate his pronouncements? Who are we to decline his pardon offered in Jesus? End quote. So verse 22 shows that exactly the place they assert their own wisdom above God, they only show themselves to be fools. There are a lot of talking heads today, aren't there? Not a lot of wisdom coming out. Just people who love to hear themselves speak and make much of themselves. The verb here, claim, often carries the connotation of asserting something that had no sound rationale to substantiate it. That's why Christians engage in the debates and discussions of philosophers. 
to point out their fundamental assertions that have no sound rationale to substantiate them. This is mankind living in fake reality. And so when we miss the purpose of our existence, when you get that wrong, ignoring God, we become ungrateful. Look around you today, beloved. Are people filled with thankfulness? Are people sweeter to one another in traffic and in the stores? Are young people more eager to live selflessly? Are young people more mature and grounded in, the, in reality? Are marriages more stable? Are people trying to conform to the good of society or asking society to conform to them instead? Part of the wrath of God is revealed in humanity's loss of intelligent thinking, Paul says. That's why often you hear people say, you've lost your mind, as certain positions are argued for today. As men try to sneak their way into women's sports, into women's locker rooms and bathrooms, they've lost their minds. Think about your life as an arrow being shot. One small change in the angle over a long distance only grows larger and larger off the target. Sin and rejection of God causes us to get further and further from the mark. If you don't have that fundamental starting place right with God, that arrow is just going to keep going and going further off the mark. This is what it means in practice to suppress the truth about God, which Paul mentions in 118. Sin turns people's minds away from God and even against God. The smart guys out there, they, call, they say this is what's called the noetic effect of sin. You see, sin simply doesn't mess with humanity's moral compass, sin infects the mind to such a degree that human reasoning assumes a default position that is hostile to God. People prefer to be, this is a great quote, people prefer to be stupefied by their sin rather than immerse themselves in God's majesty. We rather slum it up with our sins and our pleasures than worship creator God. People savor the dementia of evil, one author put it, over the joy of worshiping their creator. No wonder Paul says these rejectors of the divine claim to be wise, but in reality are fools. Greg Banson, in his brilliant apologetic book, said this, Imagine a person who comes in here today and argues no error exists but continues to breathe air while he argues. Now, intellectually, atheists continue to breathe. They continue to use reason and draw scientific conclusions, which assumes an orderly universe, to make moral judgments, which assumes absolute values, but the atheistic view of things would, in theory, make such breathing impossible. They are breathing God's air all the time. They are arguing, though, against him. End quote. While we degrade ourselves in folly and foolishness and terrible thinking, there is one who came to bring us up from such disaster, and his name is Jesus. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you want to know God, you've got to come through me. You want to get your starting point right, you've got to start with Jesus. You've got to come to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. People need God's gift of righteousness because humanity is under God's wrath, number four. The transposition, the transposition of worship. It's another way of saying exchange, the exchanging. 
Again, I want to quote John Murray. He said, the mind of man is never a religious vacuum. If you think man's mind is just empty and ready to absorb, you've missed it. The the mind of man is never a religious vacuum. If there is the absence of the true, there is always the presence of the false, end quote. Became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. And so that leads to what's happened here in verse 23. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling, not surprised at the top, mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. If it's creation, we will find a way to worship it, to treasure it above the maker. We can't help ourselves. (laughs) You know why? Because we were created to worship, but created to worship the creator. So if we reject him, you know what's going to happen? We will worship something else. There's never been a time in your life you haven't worshipped something. Where you haven't put all your hope, your trust, and obedience towards something or someone. Beloved, God created the world very good, Genesis 1. All created things have good in them. We are right to find them admirable and to enjoy them. But the problem comes from giving created things uh, inordinate affection, you know, things that to ultimate affection, which only God deserves and has the right to demand. No person and no thing has the right to demand your worship except God. Young people, you remember that as you get wrapped up in some person you want to date and marry. They do not have the right to demand your worship, and neither should you give it to them. Your worship belongs to God. The human heart loves to make a good thing into a God thing. And so this exchange, this transposition in our worship and service undoes the created order. It flips it upside down. We've got it all backwards. So humans are made in the image of God, made to relate to him in his world and reflect his nature and goodness in sin. We don't worship the creator. Instead, we worship creation, which Paul's going to get to as we keep going through this section. And so this is the, this is the behavior, what the Bible calls fools. Someone calls me a fool for Christ, thank you. I'd rather be a fool for Christ than a fool worshiping the created things of this world. In order to suppress the truth that there is a creator, people engage in in non-sequitur, such as the worship of self and irrational leaps like naturalism. And so since the fundamental truth about God is being held down, suppressed, and ignored, Life cannot be lived in a consistent way. We are purposed people. Young people are starving for purpose, but sinfully choose purposes against God and march with those that are about wickedness today. Again, Tim Keller noted, there has to be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance, which is the resting place of our deepest hopes, which we look to calm our deepest fears. Whatever that thing is, we worship it, and so we serve it. It becomes our bottom line, the thing we cannot live without, defining and validating everything we do. What's your validation today? What's defining you? Is it your pleasures? Is your your activities, maybe activism? What do you worship? What's your bottom line that you can't live without? If it's something other than Jesus, you have an idol. I love this observation from the CSB Study Bible. Many people think arrogantly 
that us poor Christians have not progressed from the, with the Enlightenment period. But here he says, Paul warns that loss of knowledge of the true God resulted in the worship of images resembling mortal man. Even in the modern age, we have seen dictators worshipped as gods. I would note pop stars and athletes as well. And no image is worshipped above man's pleasure and pride. And the Bible says that this sin is, will be repeated climatically all the way through the end times, end quote. So Paul pictures each person like this. Everybody's just like Adam in Genesis chapter 3, repeating the same basic sin committed by the original human parents. And so verse 20 through 23 describe the basic decision made by, by the Gentiles. And then as we go through in God's reaction to that decision, we have all sinned against God. I should conclude. There is only one who could lift us from the degradation of sin and help us stop exchanging uh, our worship of false things for the one true God, and that is Jesus Christ. But you got to know you need him. Do you know that you need Jesus? You know, those goofy t-shirts out there that say, y'all need Jesus. You people need Jesus. Now, they say it to, to be kind of cutesy. And I'll go, you can go engage those kind of people with those t-shirts. And often they're like, yeah, we do need Jesus. And they, they don't want to talk about it. I've had that happen to me at Costco. Nothing against Costco. It was just the guy in the shirt. We all need Jesus. We've all sinned. Sin has kidnapped our worship. <laughs> and we, we willfully, lovingly let it happen. And grace, though, through Christ, works to restore us to our rightful owner, God. And it's only when God is in his rightful place in our hearts that everything else is in the appropriate place in our lives. And only powerful grace can accomplish this. God sent us Jesus. The righteousness of God has been revealed. And that righteousness comes through Jesus, who lived perfectly in our, in our place and died substitutionarily in our place on the cross and was raised in our place from the grave and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And those who are in faith are seated with him. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. You have been warned today. If you're not a Christian, you have heard the message of the Bible. You will be accountable for what you've heard. And Christian here this morning, I want to close with this. We should be the most humble and thankful people on the planet. The wrath of God is revealed. But God sent Jesus. And if you put your faith in him, he covers you in the righteousness of Christ. Are you, are you united to Christ today? Does your life show that you're united to Christ? Let's pray. Lord, your wrath is being revealed. We see it all around us. And that outside of your kind grace, we are all unrighteous suppressors of the truth, ignoring, Lord, your invisible attributes, breathing your air. And we, like all humanity, we're without excuse. Lord, we want to turn from that. 
and say we bless your name. We give you thanks for our life and for our redemption in Jesus today. Help us to rest in how you have taken away your wrath in taking away our sin at Calvary's cross. We truly have peace with you through your son. It is indeed well with our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.